Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is, speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from. And when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, You know me, and you know where I come from. But I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him, because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, you will seek me and you will not find me? And where I am, you cannot come. And then skipping down to verse 40. When they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ not to come, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, uh, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, Why do you not bring him? The officers answered, No one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered them, Have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities of the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before, and who was one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray together. Gracious Father in heaven, we uh, pray for your mercy that you would uh, come in grace and speak to us as we give our hearts and our minds to your holy word. Uh, teach us who Jesus is. Grant us faith. And uh, so we pray that you would um, open the ears of the deaf. You'd give sight to the blind and you would raise the dead as we hear the words of life uh, from John chapter 7. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, uh, we are re- returning this morning, uh, this winter, to our, our study of the Gospel of John. We, uh, we looked at the first six chapters of John last Christmas to Easter. And then now we're going to look at the next six chapters of John from, from Christmas to Easter again. And I'd like to begin just by giving a little background on uh, the, uh, 
the book of John. I, if you weren't here last week, Jonathan gave us some background, and I'll repeat some of what he said in case uh, you weren't here. And uh, the Gospel of John was uh, written by one of jo- uh, Jesus' closest friends. Jesus had th- kind of an inner circle of the three closest friends, James, Peter, and John. And, uh, and uh, John actually never names himself. In the Gospel of John, he's, you know, maybe you know that he calls himself the disciple who Jesus loved. So I think it's a great way to think of yourself. I'm the disciple that Jesus loved. He loved me. And we should all think of ourselves that way. And, uh, but it's an important point because, you know, at the beginning of the Gospel, if you read in John chapter 1, the first two disciples that meet Jesus are Andrew and an unnamed disciple. And you're like, who's the unnamed disciple? And then you get to the end, the very last scene in the Gospel of John, there, where Peter and another unnamed disciple are walking along the beach with Jesus, who the disciple of Jesus loved. And what John's kind of subtly doing is he says, I'm the disciple that's not named. I'm the first one at, in John chapter 1, and I'm the last one at John, uh, John 21. And so, and what this was, this was actually a, a technique in the ancient world where if you were giving an eyewitness testimony, the eyewitness would put themselves at the beginning of the story and the end of the story and they'd say, I was there at the beginning, I was there at the end, and I was there for everything in between. And, and so the Gospel of John is an intimate account of Jesus from one of his closest friends. And actually, if you ever wonder, why are there some stories in the Gospel of John that aren't in the other Gospels? Well, that's probably why, because John was particularly close with Jesus. And, uh, and maybe because of that intimacy, uh, Christians throughout history have considered the Gospel of John maybe the most beloved book in the whole Bible. You know, it has all these iconic stories. You know, Jesus is at the wedding the, with the poor couple who run out of wine, and he turns the water into wine. And, and he uh, meets the Samaritan woman at the well, and he weeps when his friend Lazarus dies. And then that final scene on the beach where he makes breakfast for, for Peter and, and tell, you know, asks Peter, do you love me? And it's just these great, memorable uh, scenes. is truly a masterpiece. And now the first 12 chapters of the Gospel of John are, are what's called the Book of Signs, and which means that they're structured, uh, those 12 chapters are structured around seven miracles that Jesus does in those first 12 chapters. So he turns the water into wine, and he heals a royal official's son, and he uh, heals a paralytic, and he feeds the 5,000, and he walks on water, and he heals a blind man, and then he raises Lazarus from the dead. And, uh, and, you know, as, as Jonathan mentioned last week, if you look at the very ending of the Gospel of John, John tells us why he wrote this Gospel. And he says, I've written down all these signs that Jesus did so that you would believe that he's the Son of God. And that by believing in him, you would have life in his name. That's why he wrote, and John, Jonathan pointed out, 98 times the word to believe shows up in this gospel. It's about, it's about coming to believe. And you see that that's present in this passage right here. Look at verse 31 that I just read there. It says, yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? So you see we're right smack middle in the book of signs, those first 12 chapters of John. So the first 12 chapters of the book of signs, the last nine chapters of John are the, the Holy Week. You know, in Jesus, the last week of his life, he goes into Jerusalem for the Passover and he has his final meal with his disciples. And he's, he's arrested and he's crucified. And the third day, he's, he's, he's risen from the dead. And, and um, uh, so, so that's the structure of the Gospel of John. So one way you can structure it is around these miracles or signs seven of them, 
you can also structure it around the seven feasts. There are seven feasts, you know, seven signs, seven feasts. And, uh, you know, Jesus was from Galilee. Galilee was about 80 miles north of Jerusalem. And so the Jews, you know, would have to travel to Jerusalem for these feasts. And, you know, that's kind of like walking from here to Seattle, you know. And so he would make that trip. And so there's seven feasts that, that Jesus uh, attends. And in John chapter 7, the passage I just read for you is the fifth of those feasts. It's, it's called the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles, which I, I, I love this feast because it's what they're doing in this feast is they're remembering when the Israelites were in the desert and they all lived in tents. So they go and they set up tents in Jerusalem. It's like this giant camp out for a week. And they're remembering, oh, you know, we're going to pretend like we're back in the days with Moses, you know, and we're wandering around the wilderness. So they have a camp out and they worship together in the temple. And so they're, they're having this camp out and Jesus has shown up kind of unexpected. And, uh, you know, Jesus has been in Galilee, 80 miles north. He's started this movement and where all these followers and disciples have believed in him and started following him. And word has come to Jerusalem about, you know, this Jesus. And so there's a huge debate kind of stirring in Jerusalem. Who is Jesus? And uh, that's one of the things I love about this passage that we just read is there's a citywide debate happening. I counted 14 questions in this passage. There's all kinds of questions stirring. You know, where did he come from? Where was he born? Where is he going? Is he the prophet? Is he the Christ? Who's done more miracles than him? You know, has anyone ever said things like he has? There's all these questions stirring, and everyone is a part of the debate from kind of all classes of society. So you've got the common people are debating about him and the Jews and the, and the police officers and the, you know, the, the ruling class, you know, the, the chief priests and the, the hyper-religious Pharisees. And then you've got the intellectuals and the scholars. Everyone is, gets to be in on, on the debate. Well, over the last 20 centuries, uh, that debate has not stopped. And it is no amount of any official position, uh, academic or political opinions about Jesus have stopped common people from wondering maybe Jesus was who he said he was. And so today we're going to uh, weed through some of the debate of this passage. We're going to enter into it. We're going to join the, <laughs> the stir that's happening in Jerusalem. And uh, this might be valuable to you if you're, uh, you know, certainly if you're here and you're not a Christian. Uh, this passage is pre challenging you with the question. All of us must be challenged with the question, who is Jesus Christ? Have you faced that question? I think it's true, not just true if, if you're not a Christian. Maybe you're a young person who's grown up in the church. And maybe you've come here and you say, you know, my parents believe in Jesus and I've always come to church with them. Have you faced the question? Have you wrestled, been challenged with the question, who is Jesus? Do you believe in him? Not just because my parents, not just because my church, but I, I've worked through it myself and I believe in him. Well, today I'd like to argue that in order to enter into this debate about Jesus, you need to understand two things. The importance of doubt and the importance of doctrine. Two things, the importance of doubt and the importance of doctrine. To know who Jesus is, you need both of these things. And I know that, you know, most people think of doubt and doctrine as kind of opposites, right? Doctrine and dogma is what people doubt. But actually, they're really two sides of the same coin. And so I hope to show that as we go along. So two points this morning in how we answer the question, who is Jesus? The importance of doubt and the importance of doctrine. And the first is this, the importance of doubt. Where do our doubts come from? Well, a couple of places that this passage says that 
doubt comes from is on the one hand, doubt comes from, you know, you might say cultural authorities who tell us that believing in Jesus is foolish. In every culture, there are people in positions of power and who have influence who tell us that if you believe in Jesus, you're a fool. So on the one hand, there are cultural authorities, but also most of us have like our own minds, our own assumptions, our own reasons, our own ways we think. So it's kind of from the world and outside doubts come in and from the inside, from our own minds, those doubts come. And so I think in order to believe in Jesus, we need to learn to kind of doubt the doubts, right? We need to learn to doubt the authorities that cause us doubt. And we need to learn to doubt our own assumptions and our own, you know, uh, uh, reasons, the way that we've been used to thinking. And so I want to talk about each of these a little bit. So first, you have to learn to doubt the authorities. And now throughout this passage, it reiterates that Jesus is being opposed by the authorities in Jerusalem, the people in power in Jerusalem. You see that there, verse 25, it says, Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is not this the man whom they, they is the authorities, seek to kill? And again in verse 30, So they were seeking to arrest him. And then down to verse 32, The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Now, in every age, there are people in positions of power who hate Jesus and will do whatever they can to silence him. That it's always been true. And, and that's what I mean by the authorities. And, you know, actually, I've, this last year I've been working my way through Augustine's uh, The City of God, which he wrote around the time of the fall of Rome. And it's a, it's a book about the city of man and the city of God. You know, the Rome was falling apart, and he says the city of man is fading but the city of God is, is eternal. And he spends the first third of that book just interacting with the city of man, like Roman culture. And it's interesting how he structures that first third of the book is around these three kind of authorities, you might call them. He says, well, you know, first there are the poets. The poets would write the, the plays in the theater where all the people would go and they'd follow these stories about the gods. And, and that taught people how to think about spirituality and the gods. And then there was the civil religion where, you know, Rome was this kind of multi-ethnic international empire. And everyone was kind of unified by worshiping the emperor. And so there was this, this, this civil religion. And then there were the philosophers, you know, the Platonists and the Stoics who were all writing about, you know, how we should live life. And, um, and I, you know, I, it struck me reading this how those three kind of centers of power are exactly the same in our day. I mean, who, who are the poets in our day? I mean, it's the people who make movies and who, who write music, the media, the entertainment. Huge industries shapes how we think, how we think about God, how we think about the Bible, how we think about life. The poets are still here. And then, the, you know, the civil religion. I mean, we have a huge political culture that has a deep influence on our emotional life, our relationships, our culture. And then who are the philosophers? The whole academic university system, the professors who have a tremendous influence over how we think. Everyone, you know, we think everyone should pass through this kind of college system and learn from the, from the philosophers. And each of these centers of power and authority structures are generally hostile to Christ. All three of those. You know, I, it's not hard to imagine that, you know, you take, for example, a university, an institution is not that different of a structure than the temple was. You know, they have chief priests, we have professors. You know, the chief priests had a tradition, 
that had been passed down to them, and they guard the tradition. They make sure everyone believes according to the tradition, and they have a tremendous amount of influence, and uh, people respect them, and, uh, and anyone who threatens the, you know, the ideas of the, those who have this influence, you know, uh, they, they, try to, they try to stop, and they fiercely defend this tradition. We, we have this same authority structure in place. And so how do these authorities respond to people who want to seriously consider Jesus? Well, I think verse 45 is telling. It says, The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, Why did you not bring him? So the officers are, are like the police officers. In the temple, they had a, a, a police force that would make sure, you know, people didn't go into certain parts of the temple they're not supposed to go into. And so they told the police force, go arrest that guy. He's not, he's not talking the way we want him to talk. And, and you look at what these police officers say back to them. Verse 46, the officers answered, no one ever spoke like this man. They're like, we weren't sure we wanted to arrest him. We kind of like what he was saying. And, you know, what's the big deal? Why are you guys so upset? And what's the response of the authorities? Verse 47, the Pharisees answered them, have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities of the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. People, you know, you hear what they say. You, are you some kind of idiot? Like people who believe in Jesus, are you, you don't, we're the ones who have knowledge. We are the ones who have power, and no one who is important believes in him. And so just like Augustine, that's a tremendous pressure that we feel in a culture of, do I want to believe in Jesus? And you're not going to believe in Jesus unless you confront that. That's why Augustine says, you're only going to be able to answer the question, who is Jesus, if you soundly doubt the authority structures of our own culture. Now, uh, one thing, though, it's great to read Augustine because it's not like... He's kind of a fundamentalist who just is, doesn't believe anything that the pagans around him. He was like, you know, they're good on this point. They're wrong on this point. You know, he, he's discriminating. He has a discriminating posture toward the culture of his day. And that's what I mean by the importance of doubt. Things that our culture assumes are obviously true, we have to learn to doubt. Now, you might be sitting there and say, all right, so I'm supposed to doubt the authorities in my life. I'm up here telling you what to believe, how to think. Am I an authority that you should also doubt? And I think, uh, yes, you should. That's why every week when we come here, what is our teaching about? I'm not teaching you my ideas. We're going to be here in John chapter 7. It's kind of a strange passage. This was a difficult passage for me to figure out how to talk about. And uh, we go through a passage of Scripture. And you should feel that I'm not pointing you to my own ideas, but to the Scriptures. And I think the Gospels call you as lay people to critically engage with what you're hearing. It empowers you. The Bible is in your hands. Does what I'm saying match what God's Word says? And God has put His Word into your hand for you to study it, to think about it, to reason about it, to debate about it. And, uh, of course, God's given to the church uh, pastors. I'm not saying that you should, you know, be suspicious. You know, it might be like, wow, the Bible's a big book. There's a lot. I'm... I can't quite put all the pieces together. We can help you put the pieces together. But first, we have to appreciate the importance of doubting the cultural and religious and intellectual authorities in the world around us. Now, when you doubt the culture around you, the world around you, you does, does that mean then, well, I'm not going to trust what anyone else says. I'm only going to trust my own intellect. Because if I can't trust any of the world, then I must 
trust my own mind, which is actually what the modern world has told us. You know, Descartes famously said, I think, therefore I am. The only ultimate authority that I'm going to trust is my own reason. But, you know, our individual intellects are just as much a problem as the culture around us. Why would we trust our own intellect more than the culture around us? So that's the second thing that we need to learn to doubt, is we have to learn to doubt our own knowledge, our own assumptions, the, own, the way that we have traditionally thought or that we've grown up thinking. We have to be willing to doubt ourselves. And you see this here, verse 25, how it says, Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is, speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? So here you've got all these average people in Jerusalem being like, you know, maybe the authorities are wrong. Maybe they've got some other motives of why they're trying to arrest him. But then they go on. So they're suspicious of the authorities, but then they go on in verse 26. And, he says, and it says, but we know where this man comes from. And when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. You see what they're saying? We already, already know all about Jesus. We've heard about him in Galilee. We have all these assumptions about him. We've got him figured out. And, you know, the, the word for knowing appears up in, a number of times in this passage. And, you know, and you see how Jesus responds in verse 28. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, you know me and you know where I come from. So I know it doesn't have a question mark in that translation. There's some debate of whether it should be a question mark at the, end of, at, that, at the end of that sentence. I think that's what he's saying. He's inviting them to doubt their own knowledge. How much do you really know about me? And then he goes on in verse 28. But I've not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. Jesus says, you do not know the one who sent me. I come from a world, there's a whole unseen world, reality, a mysterious reality behind all of our existence, all of our lives, that we have very limited knowledge about. And he says, that's where I came from. That's what I know about. And ultimately, the one who made you, I know him. If we're going to have doubts, what should we doubt more? Should we doubt our own intellect or doubt Jesus more? Jesus is calling us to say, how much do you really know? And you know, I remember uh, before I was a Christian, I used, you know, I was like a teenager. I was like 15. I used to steal these 40s of malt liquor and I'd go sit in the woods and drink with my friends and say, and I'd go on these long tirades about how religious people and Christians and people who believe the Bible are so stupid. And don't they know that this, this is all clearly not true? And I just ridiculed them. And it's amazing to me. Like, I literally, I don't think I'd read one word of the Bible. I'm not even sure I'd had a conversation with a Christian. I don't know where I thought I knew so much about church and what Christians believe. And, uh, and uh, <laughs> I'd hardly even read a single book in my whole life. And yet... The amazing confidence with which I spoke is like, where does this confidence come from? Proverbs 28, 26 says, whoever trusts in his own mind is a fool. Proverbs 3 says, do not lean on your own understanding. You will not be able to answer the question, who is Jesus, without being discriminating not only against the culture around us, but also against our own assumptions, our own ways that we've traditionally thought and say, you know, I'm willing. And you know, by the way, that's how all learning happens. Learning only happens when your assumptions are disrupted. Your, disru your assumptions have to be disrupted. And so that's why I say doubt is important. And I'm not saying doubting God or doubting Jesus. They're the only ones worth trusting. 
but we have to be willing to doubt our culture's authorities and to even doubt our own minds. But you know, this raises a problem because some of you might hear that and say, I can't trust my own mind? How does that dissolve into like a radical skepticism that I can't trust my own mind? How do you come to know anything except through your mind? You have to trust how your mind works. And uh, well, that's why we need a second guide for answering the question, who is Jesus? Not only the importance of doubt, but the second part is we also need to know the importance of doctrine. We need to know the importance of doctrine. And the reason you shouldn't despair that I can't know anything because I can't trust my mind is because the Bible says that Jesus wants to teach you. Jesus will guide your mind. He can. And you can know real things through him. And, you know, anyone who's entered into the you know, journey of following Jesus knows that there's a great deal to learn in being a Christian. Christianity has always been an intellectual faith. It requires reading and thinking and reason. You know, you got to listen to sermons like this. And you got to follow along. And you got to, you know, okay, I got to, what's he saying? I got to track with what's being said. And, you know, it's common in the church in our day for Christians to say things like, you know, I don't want to get all hung up on doctrine. I just believe in Jesus. I'm all about Jesus. Doctrines divide people. And so let's just keep it simple and say we're about Jesus. Now, as a church, we kind of sympathize with that. If you come here, you're going to hear about Jesus every week. We don't ever want to move on from Jesus. Like, we're all about Jesus. But, you know, the Bible says that in Jesus are all the depths of the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And, you know, there's no one in history that more volumes have been written about than the person of Jesus. I mean, just libraries and libraries of books about him. Um, and that's all doctrine. And it's like if we're all about Jesus, then we want to know everything there is to know about him. Jesus is not just a fuzzy abstraction from the past. He said things. He's done things. And it should be our desire to mine the depths of his wisdom. But, uh, but you still might say, well, okay, but if we have all these opinions about Jesus, doesn't that divide people? It absolutely does. And, and the Bible expects that Jesus is going to divide people. Some of you know Jesus' famous saying where he says, do not think that I've come to bring peace to the earth. I've not come to bring peace but a sword, for I've come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her, uh, her mother. And some of you will know exactly what he's talking about. If you came to faith, maybe in a family that wasn't Christians, and your family said, what? You're going to believe in Jesus? And it created a major rift in your family. He says, I know that that's going to happen. It's Jesus being honest with us. And so he, even here in this passage, there is division. Look at verse 40. When they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? And you, you see, this is all discussion about the Bible. This is a discussion about theology, about doctrine, exegetical questions. And so then verse 43 says, so there was a division among the people over him. Jesus will create division. Now, the Bible does say that people can be overly dogmatic. 
quarrelsome. You know, the Apostle Paul says he didn't, in the churches he planted, he didn't want people who just loved to pick a fight and, you know, stirring up division in churches. We need to avoid that. So the question is, what are the most important doctrines that we have to be, the church should be most insistent upon? And, of course, the most important doctrines are around the question, who is Jesus? Those are the most important. And there are two doctrines in this passage that Jesus emphasizes that I'm going to talk briefly about. The incarnation and the ascension. There's lots of doctrines in the Bible about Jesus, but there's two in this passage. So first, Jesus says, we need to understand. If you want to answer the question, who is Jesus, you need to understand the incarnation. And the incarnation means that God took on flesh. God entered into our world. He incarnated uh, and walked among us. And you can see how Jesus describes who he is there in verse 28, where it says, So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, You know me, and you know where I come from, but I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. What do we learn from these verses? Well, we learn that Jesus came from God. He says, you know where I'm from? You think you know where I'm from because you think I'm from Galilee. But he hasn't mainly come from Galilee. He has a far more ancient origin. He says he was with God. It means he, has a, he had a heavenly existence before he became a man, and God sent him here. And in these verses, you know, we're reminded of the very beginning of the Gospel of John, those, those famous words, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then it goes on and it says, the true light which enlightens everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. The one who had made the world had come into the world. It's an incredible statement. And in these little verses, you know, all these words about Jesus said, I have come and I have been sent, those are just key words that make, that tell us the uniqueness of Christianity. Because, um, you know, every other religion offers human beings, you know, a technique or a religion or a set of principles that help us to kind of connect with the spiritual. You know, like all humans, all cultures throughout history have realized there is this spiritual reality behind what we can see. And there's this question, how do we get in touch with it? And so there's all these religions say, if you do these things, you'll get in touch with, with the spiritual reality. Christianity is saying the opposite. It's not that we went and got in touch with God in the, in the divine. The divine came and got in touch with us. Jesus says, I came and I was sent. And so when we ask, who is Jesus, the first doctrinal answer is the incarnation. He's God become a man. He's God come to us. And if you want to believe in him, you have to understand that. Okay? But second, Jesus also says we need to understand the ascension, the incarnation and the ascension. You see the ascension in verse 33. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. So he says, the first, the first time he says, well, I came, I was sent. And now he's saying, I'm going back to where I came from. And, you know, when you read this in the Gospel of John, if you, re if 
read through the Gospel of John, it sounds so cryptic. And even the people who are listening to him are like, what's he talking about? He's going to go somewhere else? He's going to go among the Greeks and go preach among the Greeks, which is ironic because Jesus, when he goes to the Father, what's the first thing he does? He sends his disciples to the Greeks. So in some ways, he does do what they think. But, uh, but it, if anyone who's read through the Bible knows that this is a reference to Jesus' ascension, that after Jesus died on the cross... The third day he rose from the dead and then his body rose from the dead and then he walked around for 40 days and he talked with people and he told them about God's kingdom and he appeared to people so they knew that he was alive and then his body ascended into heaven. That's where Jesus is now. And he was uh, uh, taken up into, into heaven to the right hand of God the Father and he was enthroned as the king. And this whole movement of these two doctrines captures the drama of the gospel that he through whom the worlds were made, who's high, had all glory, all power, was equal with God, he came down. He, he not only took on flesh, he not only became a baby, he came into a poor family. He became a servant. He died on the cross, a shameful death in our place. And he went to the darkest place, human death. And from the lowest place, he is lifting us up. He was raised from the dead. He wasn't just raised from the dead and conquered death. He ascended into heaven. He's been seated at the right hand of God the Father. He's been given all authority in heaven and earth. He is the king of kings. He's been given the name above all names that he is now called Lord. This doctrine, this movement, is what we recite every week in the Apostles' Creed, what we're about to recite. And it's the main doctrine of this is who Jesus is. And, and so when it comes to answering the question, who is Jesus, we need two things. We need both doubt and we need doctrine. We need the negative side to question how our world thinks and how we've been thinking. And we need the positive side to be taught and to understand who he is. Uh, we need to learn to doubt the cultural and religious and intellectual authorities of the culture around us that say we are fools for believing in him. And we need to even doubt our own knowledge and assumptions and reason. But we can't just have the negative side, the doubt. We need to learn the doctrine of what Jesus says about himself. And in this passage, it's the incarnation and the ascension. That he has come down and he has gone back up. And John says, when we believe this, we will have life in his name. May it be so. Let's pray together.